Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I love this week. I love Easter. I can't wait to be celebrating the resurrection of our Savior. I love talking about it. And Rick Madsen is going to join me this whole hour to talk about the evidence of the resurrection. This will make for a fascinating hour. Get your pencils out if you're still using pencils and paper, or get your iPad charged up. Rick, of course, is a regular guest here on the show. He also has been uh, with University Christian Fellowship since 1981 and always uh, full of fascinating stories as he travels around the country uh, talking to campus groups and mentoring and leading uh, people in their faith. Rick, welcome back. Thank you. How was that intro? Uh, that was accurate, Bill, yeah. and we're striving I... for accuracy today. Yeah, what part so. <laughs> did I, where did I drop the ball on this one? Uh, not at all. Okay. I work mainly with graduate students these days okay. around the country Yeah. Uh, as an evangelist and evangelism trainer, and then the apologetic end of things gets involved in that quite a bit, and that's mm-hmm. what we're doing today. Yeah. So let's let's get into this discussion on evidence for the resurrection. I know we all um, know a lot about the resurrection, but... I think you're going to put it in a nice, succinct nine point with lots of subpoints. Four thousand subpoints. Four thousand subpoints. <laughs> so where where would you like to start? Yeah. Well, I think the resurrection sometimes is neglected in Christian teaching and ministry. We talk a lot about the cross, but the resurrection is the capstone to the whole life of Jesus, the whole plan of salvation. Uh, if J- Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. After his resurrection, and uh, I I fear sometimes that except for Easter, we do we skip over the resurrection too much. It's all about the crucifixion and the cross and what was accomplished at the cross. I'm not against that. That's uh, a main part of the story here. But let's not w- forget what happened on the third day. Mm-hmm. Powerful. So when you talk to people, do questions come up about the crucifixion far more often than the resurrection? Mostly questions come up about either or both uh, from Christians. I don't get a lot of non-Christians asking about either the crucifixion or the resurrection. Sometimes non-Christians will object to the crucifixion as something that's uh, brutal and unnecessary. And Why the blood? Yeah, why know. the blood? Uh, would a loving God do that? Uh, exactly. I just did a debate with a, a Muslim leader at Rice University in Houston, Texas, this was a few weeks ago, and he brought that up. Like, why do you need all this blood, and why go through all this rigmarole here when God could just forgive directly? And, well, it's about justice, and it's about the need for uh, someone being held accountable and paying for sin. Instead of us paying for the sin, Jesus pays for the sin. Great, but then if he dies, that's the end of the story. But if he pays for our sin and then is resurrected to new life, and his resurrection paves the way for our forgiveness and resurrection, then we've really got something here. And that's mm-hmm. the argument I made back to Fahad at mm-hmm. Rice University. Yeah. 
All right, I've got uh, number one and my pen in hand. Let's start. Okay. Well, the resurrection fits with the rest of Jesus' teaching, and I don't think we have to dwell on this too long, but wouldn't it be weird if he predicted his resurrection, then it it never happened. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, just to give an example, Mark 9.31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. That's the crucifixion. They will kill him after three days. He will rise. So Jesus is predicting that, and it's sort of implied in different places in his ministry, and then other times he's more explicit about it, and wouldn't it be strange if it never happened? So uh, this is... uh, probably a smallish reason, but it's a reason that has to do with the consistency of his ministry and the consistency of his teaching. The resurrection then comes just as he predicted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sold already. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> let's go. We can stop there if you want, yeah. unless you want more. If you have more, let's, let's keep talking. Yeah, 2,000 subpoints under that. Okay, no, good. Well, uh, number two, we could say that along those same lines, it completes our salvation. So Jesus is raised, therefore we are raised. He's the first fruits. We're the, I don't know, the Bible doesn't use the word second fruits maybe, but mm-hmm. we're the fruits that follow along after the first fruits uh, of his resurrection. We aren't raised unless he is raised. And his resurrection then wasn't just something in the imaginations of the uh, disciples. It happened in time and space, and so will our resurrection happen in time and space. And so uh, there's lots of places we could go, but uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is a great uh, location, a great reference for this. He's essentially saying, if I can summarize quite a bit of that chapter, look, if the resurrection didn't happen, our faith is worthless, he said. Now, if it did happen, then we've got some place to go. But uh, we are among those most to be pitied, he says, Mm -hmm. if the resurrection didn't actually occur. So Paul thinks that the actual historical uh, fact of the resurrection is is vital. And if he thinks that, then uh, we probably should as well. So sometimes you have people claiming to be Christians who don't necessarily believe in the resurrection or don't believe in miracles at all. They're just along for the ride, along for the ethics. I remember sitting in the bleachers of a basketball game one time, this was a few years ago, and my son was playing. The guy sitting next to me, we got talking about Christianity. But for him, it was just a system, a structure for life. And kind of the miraculous was taken out of it, sort of a Thomas Jefferson kind of yeah. Christianity. And, of course, that included the resurrection. I think I'm trying to say here in the bibli- with the biblical authors that our salvation is completed by the resurrection. And if you take away the resurrection, we really don't have the salvation that the New Testament promises. So in uh, Romans 4.25, it says, He was delivered over to death for our sins. Okay, we know that. That's Good Friday. That's a crucifixion. And was raised to life for our justification. So we can only be justified by his blood if the resurrection comes Mm -hmm. after it, because that's... That's what clears the way, clears the pathway for us to uh, go to heaven and to be with God forever. I love that Paul says that if he didn't, wasn't raised from the dead, our our faith is pointless. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a such a powerful point that he makes. Yeah. Because what if you could 
verifiably show me the bones of Jesus today, would you go, well, I'm still going to believe. Yeah. Or would you go, uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah. I hope we'd go, uh-oh, I know I would. Yeah, I would too. And yeah. then we'd be reduced down to this Christianity just as a system yeah. of of belief, of a system to guide our lives yeah. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you could pick any religion to do that. It, this wouldn't be unique at all. A lot of, Rick, I think a lot of people want to just take the, they want to take Christianity and they want to put it into a lane that they're most comfortable with, where you say they take out the mir- the miraculous and they take out the supernatural and take out the blood and the resurrection and they just have a really, what they believe is a good moral system in place mm-hmm. that has its advantages and you can ignore some things as well, yep. which is not the gospel. Yeah, oh. love of God and love of man. So yes. Kind of re- reducing it down to those two main things. Not that those are bad and those really are at the center of what we believe, but there's much more uh, implied by that. Mm-hmm. And you can always ask when you say love of God, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, and for us, love of God should have the very content that the New Testament presents to us. And that content has to do with uh, discipleship, and it has to do with belief in the full gospel of the teachings of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the scandal of particularity, as it's often called, meaning the hard part of the particulars of Christianity, not just some sort of generic, generalized belief in God, but the particulars of historic orthodoxy going all the way back to the early church. That's the historic faith that we hold to that is laid out for us, summarized in the creeds, and uh, what my pastor teaches Sunday morning. I love it. What does your pastor teach on Sunday morning? (laughs) He teaches the gospel, and I'm so proud of him for doing that. In today's age, there's pressure not to. There's pressure to take out the miracles or take out the hard parts. In like the the, sin part? Yeah, the sin part, exactly. The eternal separation part? Eternal separation part, all those things. But those are a part of the logic and the complete picture of the gospel yeah. that we need to hold to. As we talk about this uh, on Friday and we're thinking of the crucifixion and the, the death of our Savior, the Son of God himself left that elite status of heaven to come on earth to die for our sins. Uh, we can't we can't look at it any other way. And who would make this up? That's part oh. of the apologetic here. Is it, it's, yeah. It's, it's too uh, different. It's too otherworldly to be made up. In fact, the disciples had no incentive to do so. They had every incentive to just stick with the monotheism of the Old Testament uh, as they knew it. Uh, They had no incentive to go against Rome by inventing Jesus. They had no incentive to go against their fellow Jews by inventing Jesus. That's two huge roadblocks to inventing this Jesus. Bill, they did not invent this Jesus. They discovered this Jesus. Mm-hmm. They discovered this Jesus much to their own surprise. Yeah. All right, uh, Rick, I'm looking forward to uh, this discussion today, especially today as we are uh, focusing on the death and then soon to be resurrection Easter Sunday of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Rick Matson is my guest. He has been working with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for, for a lot of years, since 1981, and he is uh, going to give us, uh, let's see, we've got cover two already or three? Uh, we two. did two. We're starting to imply some others. But... We are implying others, but we'll go <laughs> yes, back and yes. we'll give you uh, his nine points of evidence for 
the resurrection of Jesus, and uh, we'll continue after a short break and be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome back to the show. I'm with Rick Matson today. Rick's written a couple books. One is called Faith Like Skydiving and Other Memorable Images for Dialogue with Seekers and Skeptics, and also Faith Unexpected, Real Stories of People Who Found what they never imagined. Uh, both books are good. I've read both of them, and I've enjoyed them greatly. So uh, Rick's been with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship since 1981, and today he's uh, laying out nine pieces of evidence for the resurrection, which we will celebrate Sunday. And I know we've gone through a couple. If you just joined us, I always recommend when we do something like this, you could go right to the beginning if you've missed any of them, just to make sure you hear them all. We've gone through one and two. We're already up to number three, Rick. <laughs> yes. Uh, number one, it fits with the rest of Jesus' teaching. Number two, it completes our salvation. Number three, it fits with the idea of the Trinity, which the early church uh, believed in. So the logic here is that Christ made the world, and now Christ reigns over the world. So to get from creator to the one who now reigns over the world, the resurrection had to happen. So our whole theology would be incomplete without the resurrection. Uh, John 16, 10 says, I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. So wouldn't it be weird if the Son of God came to earth in the incarnation and then was crucified on a cross and then was dead? Suddenly, God was dead. That sounds like Nietzsche. It does. But of course, Nietzsche is dead. And so, fitting then with the Trinity, uh, the Son of God came to earth and was crucified as the as the, the being who was fully God and fully man. He was both. That was the formula of the early church. And so, if he was fully God, God couldn't die then on a cross at the hands of the very humans he created. Instead, God is resurrected to life, hence the doctrine of the Trinity. Hence, one of the ways the church made sense of the idea of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and and formulated the Trinity was the logic of God the Son coming to earth and praying to God the Father, and then God the Son dying on a cross and being resurrected. And so you have this one substance or one being, but in these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the resurrection fits neatly into that. So those of us who are believers, this isn't an evidence to the external world per se, but it's a kind of internal evidence to us. It's something that helps our belief be consistent. The resurrection fits with the Trinity. Uh, number four, it fits with prophecy, but go ahead and say... Oh, well, I was just generating say. a couple yeah. of questions yes, here. Please. I'm writing yes. feverishly. Okay. <laughs> So let's uh, let's just pause here yes. for a second. What um, if somebody said to you uh, at one of your 
uh, events, why did they kill Jesus? What would you say? Well, they killed Jesus. The Jews were jealous, and uh, Jesus was causing a ruckus, and he was guilty of the charge of blasphemy. And the Romans had another excuse that went right along with the Jews' uh, reasons. The Romans didn't want any other gods around to compete with either Caesar, who was seen as a god, or the other gods that were approved by the uh, Roman institution, that being uh, Zeus and, and, and all that, and some of the mystery cults. So Rome had a big stake in this. I think that's sometimes missed. Mm-hmm. Uh, people think Rome just was along for the ride. But uh, Rome's big stake in this is that if the, the people of the Roman Empire were off worshiping their own gods and not giving veneration to Caesar and not giving veneration to the approved gods of, uh, of the emperor, then they were sort of detracting from the uh, approval of those gods. And so Rome's power then could be jeopardized by not pleasing the gods, by not sacrificing mm-hmm. to the gods. What are you Jews doing over there? What are you Christians doing over there? You're off sacrificing to your own gods. No, don't do that. We need to have our gods appeased, and we need to have uh, the emperor appeased. That will empower the Roman Empire all the more. We don't want to get distracted. So the Romans had a big incentive here to get rid of anyone who claimed to be God. Mm-hmm. And Rick, when you said uh, blasphemy, it was because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and yes. that was the blasphemy that you were talking about. Yes. And so he's, and what the New Testament writers say is that he spoke with an authority that they were not accustomed to. Yeah. Uh, an authority that went beyond the local priests. He spoke as the authority of the Old Testament, and he claimed to forgive sins. Well, who could claim to forgive sins except God himself? And he made that explicit claim. And so whether the claim was uh, more implied at times or more explicit uh, here, uh, they saw him as claiming to be God. Well, A, that was impossible for the Jews because there couldn't be a second God, as they saw it anyway. We know this as the Trinity in one substance. But there couldn't, in their mind, be a second God who now came along in the first century in addition to Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament. Um, and so when Jesus came and made that claim, they're going to wait a second. This is not possible. And then the claim to forgive sins places Jesus right in the driver's seat of deity, and uh, they can't have that. And so it was on that basis, and perhaps some uh, motives of jealousy as well, that he was crucified. When I think of the authorities, they wanted to kill him, and his friends were so often confused by him, and his family uh, kind of thought he was nuts. You know, Mark 3.21 says, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And who would write that into the Gospels if it didn't really happen? Why would (laughs) you make that up? (laughs) Exactly. And he was homeless. So, boy, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've often said that relating to the God of the Bible is a cross-cultural experience for us. We have our, our whole set of assumptions of what it's like to be normal here in this culture and then we kind of have this set of assumptions of what God must be like. Well, he's sort of like us, I guess. But if you actually read the Bible carefully, you find out in many ways he's not in some of the ways you just mentioned. And so we have to get accustomed to this idea of this stretch of time between ourselves and God, but also this uh, difference in our ways and our thinking and the ways and thinking of God. And mm-hmm. that's the gulf that we have to try and get across. But of course, God has come 99% of the way. Yeah, right. He has bridged the gap. Yes. 
and just said, come this 1%. I bid you make that decision to follow me and be in relationship with me. And then the bidding is to be in relationship with the biblical God, not the God of our own imaginations. Mm -hmm. Do that today. Mm -hmm. Make this the best Easter ever. Mm -hmm. Make today the day you've given your life to Christ. All right, Preach let's go to number four. <laughs> number well, I four. I never get tired of saying it. Yes, that. I don't get tired of hearing it or saying it. Uh, the resurrection fits with prophecy. We could do a lot here, but just to give one or two examples. Psalm 1610, uh, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. So the idea here is that uh, David is looking ahead to the resurrection. And how do we know that? Well, Peter comes along and and says it. Uh, Peter in Acts 2.31, seeing what was to come, he, David, spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his, did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to it. So I think this is kind of cool because it's one thing to look back in the Old Testament and start to see formations in the clouds, let's say, cathedrals in the sky, things that, oh, they're not really there, but we think they should be there, so we read them into. But what if the chief apostle looked back into the Psalms and saw that same thing and said, no, David was looking ahead to the resurrection. David was referring to the idea that God would not allow his Holy One uh, to see decay and uh, would be raised to new life. And we are all witnesses of it. So um, as we look back into the Psalms, we look back through the eyes of Peter into the Psalms, and uh, he's interpreting it for us. We could do lots of other things in Isaiah and other places of how the life of Jesus in general fulfills prophecy, but uh, sometimes we get some uh, nice references to the resurrection as well. Mm-hmm. Rick Matson is my guest. We're going through... Uh, nine pieces of evidence for the resurrection. I know there's probably a zillion, isn't there? <clears throat> well, and you think of Isaiah, it's not like he was around uh, 50 or 100 years before Jesus. Yeah. We're talking 750 years before the time of Christ. Yeah. So I find that pretty cool. I do too. So we're going to uh, take a little break, but uh, when we come back, we're going to continue our study uh, with Rick Matson on evidences of the resurrection. And I hope as you are preparing your heart today, and tomorrow and on Sunday for Resurrection Day that you are um, not only preparing but getting your yourself in a place where you are living in the resurrection and doing that year-round. I mean, every day should be Christmas and, Res- and Easter Sunday every day. Um, I think that's a great way to live life. So we'll take a short break, and we'll be right back with uh, Rick Matson in just a minute. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. 
faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. So glad to be back with Rick Matson. We're talking about evidence of the resurrection, which makes me happy. We're saying over the break that we love talking about this. We love hearing it. Rick said this completely fires him up, and it does me too, Rick. So we have that in common, which is good. And so let's continue our study. Yeah, it's in the head and the heart. Yes, it is. For, I think, uh, all of us in the studio. I think we're all the way up to number five, Yeah, number we? five. Sweet. Uh, the resurrection is attested to in uh, multiple sources. So that's uh, kind of a hist- historian's language, the discipline of historiography. And what they mean by that is that you have multiple witness, multiple testimony in the ancient world of Jesus. So if we think of the New Testament not as a single document, but as a library of documents, it's a collection of documents. Someone did the collecting for us. A whole group of people called the early church uh, collected the source material about Jesus that they believed from the apostles best represented his life from four different perspectives. And so uh, the rest of the New Testament uh, chimes in as well. So you've got all four Gospels. You've got the rest of the New Testament, 20-some books, 22 or three more books. And so you've got a, approximately 10 authors who've been cl- whose writings have been collected into one library for us called the New Testament. And they all agree that the resurrection happened. Um, and they wrote their documents when many people were still alive who had witnessed uh, these things for themselves and could have refuted what they said. So if you read scholars like Craig Blomberg or Paul Eddy, they make much of this idea of other witnesses to the life of Jesus still being alive when these documents were written, and they could have refuted them, but we don't have record of those refutations. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, and, the, you know, the early church accepted the books of the New Testament. They were the ones who oversaw the collection of this library. So you have this vast number of people who either saw it directly or heard about it uh, maybe secondhand. And this vast agreement, well, anytime you have vast agreement about something in history, that's one of the marks of real history. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have here in the New Testament. I mean, safe to say it's probably the most historically verifiable event in world history? Even one of the critics of the New Testament, uh, Bart Ehrman, I just heard him on a podcast the other day, uh, will admit that the New Testament is one of the best attested documents in the ancient world. Right. Uh, The number of manuscripts that we have and uh, the number of sources that we have in the New Testament that say pretty much the same thing. Now, if they all said the same thing exactly— was word for word, we'd go, oh, wait a second, these guys got in a room together and and uh, this is all collusion. And if it was so disparate, if it was, there were so many differences in the accounts, uh, if in one Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem and another one, he died of a heart attack in Egypt, that would be bad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that would be bad. That would be bad. Yeah, that would be troublesome. Minor, some of the minor differences that are just related to perspective of the different writers of the New Testament, yeah. that's actually super encouraging for this whole discipline of historiography. 
of uh, having these multiple sources that say roughly the same thing. You know, when you look at letters of antiquity and you and you see some of the writings that are uh, still in existence, there's only copies of copies left yes. at this point, but yes. you take something like Homer's Iliad, and I think there's, what, 15 copies left? And, and the first one in our possession was written 500 years after the time of 500 composition. Years after. Yeah. And if you're a university professor, you have to sort through these and decide which one you're going to teach on because yes. they're so different. Yes, yes, that's right. So you look at the literary corruption level and you go, it's off the charts. When it comes to the New Testament, the literary uh, corruption level is minuscule. Yeah. And the standard comparisons here are with uh, historians such as Herodotus and mm-hmm. Thucydides or philosophers such as... Uh, Plato, and you look at the manuscript tradition that we have coming out of those sources, the New Testament is the bomb. It's the bomb. Uh, compared to all of those. Yeah. And uh, I just find that super encouraging. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, the Iliad has got 15 copies, and I think the New Testament has rough upwards of 250,000 copies. Yeah, it's a lot. And you compare yeah. all those copies yeah. against each other, and the corruption rate is so minusculely, it's so low and minuscule that you, you, you are astounded by yeah. its reliability. Yeah. It doesn't make the documents true. It just makes them reliable. Yes, yes, yeah. reliable to the original. You decide if they're true. Yeah, and the more eyewitnesses that you have and the more authors you have writing roughly the same thing, the more you can are likely to believe their testimony, Yeah, uh, that kind of agreement. Do you imagine some historian trying to write um, a, a book on the history of New York City? No. And then yeah. leaving out 9-11? Wow. And then right now there's too many people alive that will go, well, no one's going to buy that book because you're nuts. Right. How do you write a, a book on the history of New York and leave out 9-11? Leave out 9-11, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and uh, these authors, uh, I kind of use the 70% rule. Don't quote me on the 70% because it's not exactly that. But you have roughly in the four gospel accounts 70% agreement, and I just use that uh, term to show that there are minor differences and major agreements. But that's exactly what you want in historiography. You want these different perspectives because authors write partial accounts and they write accounts that are selective of the material. And so selectivity A, selectivity B, selectivity C, and D, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, gives us a well-rounded portrait of Jesus with minor differences that lend credibility to the accounts, but major agreement that also lend credibility to the accounts. This is exactly what you want for good history. I just want to one day use the word historiography because <laughs> yeah, I'm a little just... jealous. You keep, you, keep, you keep saying that. I'm not entirely sure what it means. You got to read. Let me just name I wanna, some. I want to say it myself someday. <laughs> Here's the authors that I read and a few others. Uh, Michael Lacona, Greg Boyd and Paul Eddy, N.T. Wright, Craig Blomberg, uh, Peter Kreeft, and Ronald Toselli, Craig Evans, Daryl Bach, William Lane Craig. There's a bunch of others. And if you read those scholars, um, you'll find the word historiography and a lot of other good stuff. My job in this whole thing is to be the translator, to read the scholars and translate for the masses. I guess that's why you have me on here. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Rick Matson is my guest. Evidence of the Resurrection. I think we're all the way up to number six. Number six. Yeah. Uh, Christians died for the resurrection. Uh, the disciples, uh, the early church, they were tortured. Can I, I won't go into all the details here. This is family show, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll just say they were badly tortured. It won't go into all the details. Uh, they were martyred for three centuries. There's an old saying that says, martyrdom proves sincerity. Think about that. 
martyrdom proves sincerity. The reason that they died for the resurrection is because they believed it was true. <laughs> they didn't make it up and then upon point of death said, well, I guess it didn't really happen. We made that up. Mm -hmm. That never happened. We have no record of Christians. Now, some might have uh, said, I don't want to die, and they renounced their faith, but we don't have any record of saying, no, we lied. We made this up. This was a fiction. There's no record of that. The reason that they went to their death in the Roman forum in the you know, being fed to the lions is that they believe this with all their hearts and that and they believe in the resurrection to come. So, for example, if you read the account of uh, Polycarp or uh, Ignatius and their willingness to be martyred. Uh, in fact, some of the early church have been accused of being a little bit too eager for martyrdom, but they were eager for martyrdom because they believed in the resurrection that was to come and the hope that was before them. And they wanted to model for their fellow Christians what it meant to be committed to Christ and committed to the resurrection. So you, don't, you die for what you believe is true, not for what you know to be false. Can I say that again? Uh, yeah, but okay. I've got something to say yes. as yeah. well. Yes. Okay. Well, say it again and yes. I'll, I'll give you You die my for what you believe is true, as they did, not for what you know to be false. Okay. But you can also be sincere and wrong. And mistaken. Yeah, because yeah, when you true. talk about the martyrdom... Yes. And you are very sincere. Yes. I think of some people who have done things that they're martyring themselves, and I think, ooh, you're wrong. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. this particular argument is an argument about their belief, okay. but it was widespread belief. Uh, true. Not just one or two people. Widespread belief. All these people, this whole community, that believed the same thing. So back to my debate with uh, Fahad at uh, Rice University here a few weeks ago. What am I arguments for Christianity against other religions and maybe against Islam as much as I respect my Muslim brothers and sisters is that Christianity is revealed to whole community through Jesus. He didn't just come to one man in a cave. Mm -hmm. Jesus, the Son of God, is revealed to a whole community. Starts with the 12, then it goes to the 120, and then it goes to the 500, and it goes out from there to the multitudes who saw him, were healed by him, heard his teaching, and so forth. Whereas in Islam, it's one man in a cave, and we're supposed to believe that. Now, if I were a shopper of religions, I would be drawn more to God revealing himself to a whole community than to one single man. Or the same thing would be true in uh, Latter-day Saint, in uh, Mormon uh, theology. So the argument here is that a vast number of people believed in the resurrection. You raised the question that if I weren't a Christian, I would raise as well. Well, what if they're all wrong? What mm -hmm. if they're all mistaken? Okay, well, we can get to that here in the coming ones. This is just one piece of the argument. That's a point you still have to come? Yes. Oh, yes. I'm got so impressed. Here. Yes, yeah, you're anticipating. You are a prophet. Uh, well... <laughs> I will not agree with that, but I got lucky. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, let's go to number seven. Okay. Number seven, the, the disciples were transformed by this belief that they had before the resurrection, before the appearances of Jesus to them. They were huddled behind closed doors, pretty much wimping out. They're scared. They're defeated. They're timid. And then after the appearances of Jesus to them, there's this explosion 
in the early church. They were bold. They were loving missionaries. They were ready to die for their faith. They had wanted this military Messiah who delivered them from Rome. Instead, they got this suffering servant. So they're so disappointed. But this risen Lord, they found out, was way more powerful than any military leader that they had wanted before. And so you might say, why worship Caesar? Why just be devoted to Caesar when you can be devoted to the creator of Caesar? Caesar is a pawn in the hands of the living God. And so these disciples became committed to the resurrected one, the one who rules over all the universe, not just the Roman Empire. The God of uh, Christianity, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the maker of Caesar, the ruler of Caesar. So why settle for Caesar when you can have the Lord Jesus? The resurrection is tied into all that. And that's what propelled their mission to the whole uh, ancient Near East around the Mediterranean world is uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine the apostles having three years with him? No. And then after the resurrection, seeing him again? Yeah. I mean, after the his death and burial and resurrection? And all the way up until his appearances to them, there's more than a hint of skepticism yeah. among the disciples. They seem to be get it, then they fall back. They seem to get it at times. They get glimpses. Uh, in Mark 8, uh, Peter says, you are the Christ. Uh, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. Uh, but even up to the time of the appearances, there seems to be doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's the, oh, it's the propulsion it's the engine of the early church is the resurrection. It's the rocket fuel of the early church. And that's what uh, propelled them out in mission, this belief in the resurrection. And that probably has something to do with uh, histor- historiography. <laughs> Historiography. <laughs> Historiography. <laughs> I was committed to saying it at least once in the show, and I blew it. All right, Rick Manson my, yes. is my guest. We're going to take a little break and be right back as we continue looking at the evidence of the resurrection. Be right back. are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Rick Matson today talking about evidence of the resurrection. Uh, just because people might have just climbed in their car and we've only got uh, eight and nine left to go, maybe we could kind of quickly uh, just give the list again. Yeah, number one, uh, the resurrection fits with the rest of Jesus' teaching. Wouldn't it be weird if it didn't? Number two, it completes our salvation. Christ is risen, so therefore we are risen. Thirdly, it fits with the whole idea of the Trinity. It was the Son of God who came to earth and who was raised and went back to the Father. Uh, uh, Number four, it fits with prophecy, and we looked at Psalm 16:10, and then Peter talking about that in Acts 2, number 5. Uh, the resurrection, as is the whole life of Jesus, is attested to in multiple sources. That is, the New Testament is a whole library of sources about Jesus. We could go to some non-Christian sources on that too, Bill, mm-hmm. so maybe some other time. Number six, the Christians died for it. They believed in the resurrection so strongly that they were willing to die for it. Number seven, they were transformed by it. They were 
timid and huddling behind closed doors. And then this uh, explosion happened in the early church, which was the resurrection, and sent them out in mission. And now we come to number eight, Mm -hmm. that there were multiple witnesses of the resurrection. So Paul makes much of this in 1 Corinthians 15. Yes, it is Peter. It's the 12. It's the 500. It's the women at the tomb. Uh, The resurrection is seen by many, many, many people. Uh, And if you read in 2 Peter uh, 1, you can read about his uh, view of that. So we talked about that a little bit, but I thought number nine with its many subpoints might be a good way to end here. Number nine is that the resurrection explains the data better than the alternatives. The resurrection is the best explanation for all of the data that we have. So one of the objections that sometimes people raise is that uh, Jesus was just resuscitated. He never really died. He might have passed out. He might have uh, been really, really sick. Uh, But if you go to Roman crucifixions, these guys are professional. What's one thing that the Romans are really good at? Killing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, They don't make mistakes. Did the Greeks invent crucifixion and and the Romans kind of perfected it? I don't know the answer to that. I I have done some poking around in the history of the... Uh, practice of crucifixion by the Romans. Yeah. However, I can't. I don't know exactly where they got it, but they were pros. Well, at it. and once a prisoner was condemned to death, the guards were no longer held accountable for their behavior. Right. So if they wanted to just go nuts, yeah. Although they were held accountable if they failed to execute. Oh, exactly. Then they became the executed. So they had all the reasons here. There's some pressure there. Yeah. So in the Gospels, you have the the spear poked into Jesus' side, uh, and water and blood comes out, and the and the Roman guards coming, and seeing. Well, we don't even need to break this guy's legs. He's already dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, and then if you say, well, no, he got buried, but he wasn't quite dead. Well, then how did he get out? Who moved the stone? How did he appear to the disciples? Uh, There's so many unanswered questions about a 99% dead Jesus who suddenly is just uh, has white robes and is talking and is out among the the people and doesn't seem to have been crucified and and all of these things. Uh, So there's really no historical logic in that. There's only maybe atheistic logic that might say, well, we know he didn't rise from the dead, so we got to find something else. But if you actually look at the historical data, there's just no way that the it's sometimes called the swoon theory mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, he was had just passed out uh, due to his wounds and uh, came to life then and somehow got out of this tomb. <laughs> and then you want to say, well, maybe some other people moved the stone. Well, the Jews, they had no incentive to move the stone. They wanted Jesus yeah. dead. The Romans, they had no incentive to move the stone. They wanted Jesus dead. The disciples, they probably couldn't and didn't even know that resurrection was yet a thing. So they had no real reason to remove the stone, nor could they have overcome these guards and yeah. and, and the then seal covered the tomb that up. And yeah. And then lied about the whole thing. Right. And then it would have been a mass cons- this lie would have been a mass conspiracy among these uneducated people. I don't think so. The simplest, most straightforward explanation for all of this 
is that the resurrection actually took place, and it was the resurrection then, and Jesus' appearance to the apostles that catapulted them out into mission. That's what transformed the early church, was the resurrection. Mm -hmm. We went from a defeated church to a on-fire church, yeah, (laughs) a Holy Spirit on-fire church, and that was the exchange. The Son of God went back to heaven, the Holy Spirit came down, and the church was empowered for witness. Mm Mm-hmm. When I look at this passage, uh, Rick, out of Matthew 28, when the uh, disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Yeah. You think, wow, there's the resurrected Jesus, and you're still Still doubting. doubting. Yeah. And so the theory that says these doubting apostles who didn't really even understand the resurrection yet somehow knew that this whole thing was a lie of... We're going to go steal the body away from Roman soldiers at night. Probably not. Yeah. (laughs) That uh, didn't happen. That's not going to happen. Not with these disciples in the shape they were in. Mm -hmm. And uh, Roman guards in the shape they were in. Yeah. That would have been another David and Goliath story that uh, most people aren't really uh, willing to believe. You'd mentioned early that the disciples maybe were mistaken about all of this. Um, and well, then you're into some sort of hallucination here that the resurrected Jesus, as they saw him, uh, they thought it was the resurrected Jesus. Really, it was something else. And, uh, you know, read some scholarship on this. Read Peter Kreeft and Ronald Toselli in the Handbook of Christian Apologetics. And they lay out this argument beautifully that Jesus ate with the disciples. He allowed them to touch his body. That's not the sign of a hallucination. Hallucination, they point out, may last a few seconds or minutes. Probably not hours. Probably not 40 days. Probably not multiple appearances. Not over meals. Not over meals. <laughs> and if this is a hallucination, again, where's the corpse? Why right. is there no body? Um, let's see. They say that hallucinations rise up from what we already know inside, but this one surprised everyone. Mm -hmm. So this wasn't a projection of their inner wishes. This came as a surprise to them. And as you pointed out, they still doubted Right. even at the very end. Uh, so he ate food, showed them their wounds. Uh, hallucination still doesn't explain how the stone got removed. The hallucination doesn't explain the empty tomb, lack of a dead body. No theory can explain all the data except a real resurrection. And you even have to wonder why. Why would there be a hallucination? Like, who would generate that? Mm -hmm. Who would create the hallucination? Mm -hmm. And if it's Jesus who never was killed, then why? Why would he do that? And then where did he go afterward if he wasn't really dead? Did he go to Egypt and have a heart attack or... Why don't we ever hear of him before? He's only 30, what, 32, 33 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's too many loose ends, but the loose ends are tied up uh, almost completely by the explanation given in the resurrection. What about, uh, Rick, the uh, angel that is uh, appearing like, like lightning in his clothes as white as snow in the tomb? Yeah. Where'd they come from? (laughs) What about the angels? Yeah. Yeah, in Mark, you've got a young man dressed in white robes. In Matthew, you've got an angel. In Luke, you've got uh, two men in clothes. In John, you've got two angels. And Mm -hmm. so there's, again, overlapping accounts from the four Gospels that tell of Jesus. And if you were making this up, why would you have women be in the first century? Not today. 
Today we might do it. But in the first century, why would you have women as the first uh, witnesses of the resurrection? And that, and this whole thing uh, hinged on their testimony, and female testimony was generally not yeah. uh, valued in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. And so if you're the apostles, and it's through your authority and your influence that these gospels are written, why would you make yourself look so foolish and lift up these women who were the first ones to come to the tomb, the two Marys and Joanna, let's say, yeah. and maybe another, there's two or three Marys involved yeah. here. Why would you write all that into the story if it didn't really happen? Yeah. You wouldn't. It, they only, it's only in the story because it really happened. And are people thinking this Mary didn't? Wasn't she demon-possessed on I, top of All of, of that. Mary Isn't Magdalene. She a little, Watch she a little the Chosen. Nuts? I know. <laughs> I know. Well, Rick, uh, we've only got about a minute left, and yeah. I just want to encourage anyone who is in a place where you have never made a decision to become a follower of Jesus to understand that this resurrection is absolutely true, and it is the basis of our, our faith that Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. And if you place your faith and trust in that and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Praise God. And that's why we do this. Uh, I'm spending my whole life doing it because I think it's true and not because I think we're getting some kind of a weird uh, kick out of it. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Really nice to have you uh, in studio today. It's been a pleasure. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you for spending time with me today. And my deepest heartfelt blessings uh, to you. From Rosie and I and everyone here at Faith Radio, we love you and have a wonderful Resurrection Day. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.